This episode of The Dig is supported by The Nation. 150 years of political analysis and progressive solutions online and in print. The Dig listeners can head to thenation.com backslash dig to get a six-month subscription to The Nation for only $12. That's thenation.com backslash dig. Check out this episode's program notes for that URL if you don't have a pen handy. Also, be sure to listen to The Nation's podcast, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Weiner. New episodes every Thursday. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. There is perhaps nothing that so exposes Donald Trump as a snake oil salesman as the fact that he ran a campaign pitched at white working class anger at so-called globalism and then stacked his administration with representatives from big finance, most notably from the great vampire squid Goldman Sachs. A decade after Wall Street blew up the global economy, it is now very much in the driver's seat and doing what it does best. And that is to ensure that global capitalism is maximally structured to act as a giant vacuum cleaner that descends from the economic sky and sucks up as much wealth as possible from regular people and redistributes it upward to the super-rich. Today, my guest is David Dayan, a journalist who trenchantly covers finance for a number of outlets, including The Intercept and The New Republic. He is also the author of a book you should definitely check out, Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. David will walk us through the current political economic position of big finance and offer some thoughts on how its hold on power can be broken. David Dayan, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me on. So most people who aren't bankers, I think, detest big banks, yet Finance is structured in such a way so that its workings can be pretty inscrutable to the very people who most need to understand it. Um, I'm a journalist. I don't cover finance, but you'd still think it would be a little less difficult for me to understand what's going on after picking up the paper in the morning. So just to start, what, a decade after the financial crisis, is the big picture about big finance that you think it's important for people to understand? Well, I think the first important thing to understand is that you really can't escape big finance. Uh, you, you cannot separate it from the other sort of machinations in corporate America, all of which are financial forms of financial engineering in some sense. I mean, uh, Apple right now has hundreds of billions of dollars that they've stashed overseas, and they're using borrowing uh, instead of tapping that source of funds. Uh, because it offers them tax advantages. So that is a form of financial engineering and really a form of financialization. Uh, and what we've seen is that these kinds of efforts have grown massively, and not just over the last 10 years, but over the last 30 or 40 years, so that practically every company uh, in you know the Fortune 500 is is at some level a financial institution. I mean, uh, some of that was very directly, things like uh, GE Capital, which was the finance arm of General Electric. 
uh, or GMAC, which was the initial financing arm of General Motors. Uh, it started for their cars, uh, for General Motors in the case of uh, GM, and, and in the case of GE Capital, to fund their specific manufacturing products. But those things grew and migrated over time. In fact, GMAC uh, was one of the largest mortgage servicing companies, and one of the most corrupt, I should add, uh, at the time of the financial crisis. So uh, first of all, you have that sort of migration. Second of all, you have the use of these financial instruments by these large operators. Uh, you know, I mean, one of the reasons that Southwest Airlines became uh, preeminent among low-cost carriers was their use of hedging, which is a type of derivative, uh, in order to secure contracts for jet fuel. Uh, and then the third thing you have is the use of private equity firms, uh, largely, to buy out uh, so many uh, core businesses that you don't think of as financial companies. And, uh, you know, you, the private equity firms use them through various forms of maneuvering and engineering, like saddling these companies with debt, like using sale leaseback strategies to actually take away their properties and then lease them back to them, uh, all sorts of financial maneuvers uh, to extract value out of these companies and give it to their particular investors. So uh, it's not just banks. <laughs> that, that would, I think, be the core thing that uh, you have to get across here. It's, it's the entire system of corporate America, which has become financialized. And that is seen as the end goal to profit rather than creating a good product that people might want. That's a really important point. Do you think it's fair to say that it was the growing power and abuses, the growing power and abuses of big finance that caused the financial crisis, but the financialization of the rest of American capitalism as a whole that that made Americans so vulnerable to the crash when it happened? Well, I think I think maybe in part that's true. I mean, what we saw in the crisis was was you know sort of a large financial engineering scheme. Uh, in this case, uh, securitization of mortgages, turning mortgages into a tradable instrument, uh, and that was done over about a thirty forty year period with uh, the help of members of both parties, um, presidencies of both parties. Uh, to change the rules so that private interests could get involved in this trading and securitization of mortgages uh, rather than the way it was previously, which was these government-sponsored entities of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, using uh, securitization to acquire more money that could be plowed back into uh, the mortgage market. Uh, in this case, it was uh, private businesses trying to get a piece of that action. Uh, and when they did, they fueled a large bubble that was uh, faded to pop since they, in order to keep up with it, they were handing out mortgages to more and more people who didn't really have the means to pay. Uh, underwriting standards completely crashed, and, and uh, you, we know what happened next. So uh, in that sense, uh, yes, it's true. Uh, in another sense, I think you could also say that uh, the way in which uh, labor and productivity have severed since the late 1970s, put uh, working Americans sort of on a treadmill where uh, in order to keep up with uh, higher costs of living amid stagnant wages, 
they, you know, sought uh, uh, a, a, an a attempt to make up for that uh, first in borrowing uh, through maybe credit cards, uh, then through uh, borrowing through their homes uh, and and the the, the various uh, speculative instruments that were done that were created uh, in order to do that, the cash out refinance, uh, which was a way to sort of use your home as an ATM, was really the preeminent uh, instrument and vehicle that was used uh, in the housing bubble. It wasn't it wasn't people buying six or seven homes. It was using uh, the initial home uh, and and capitalizing on the increase in home values to actually take out money, uh, and and usually that money was used to pay for necessities because they couldn't do it otherwise. So, yeah, I think uh, you can you can say that this drive for profit, this use of financial engineering, this this uh, you know tyranny of share, shareholder value, uh, and uh, the idea that shareholders have to be paid off first before workers can, that led to this sort of treadmill effect uh, where uh, families could uh, really have had nowhere else to turn once they had two incomes working through both parents uh, to uh, use you know this this securitization instrument uh, to to sort of feed into it by using their homes uh, as money machines. And so I think you can say that uh, financialization played a large role in the crash, the financialization of American capitalism, and continues to play a role in these very sclerotic uh, recovery that we've seen and, uh, you know, what uh, I think Larry Summers has referred to as secular stagnation, this idea that uh, 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 wages uh, uh, sort of remain constant at a very low level. Uh, that don't increase very much, and that uh, we see this this tremendous uh, uh, amount of regional inequality. In addition to you know regular income and wealth inequality, we're seeing entire regions be left behind. And I think that all is part of this piece. I think that's an incredibly important point because I mean it's broadly understood that. Um, schemes on Wall Street involving mortgage securitization um, played a huge role in the financial crisis and mm-hmm. and and the the broader economic crisis that followed. But the the bigger picture is that workers uh, with stagnant or declining wages, widening income inequality over the past few decades as unions are being busted and executive compensation is skyrocketing, that Wall Street could only do this because Americans were forced to debt finance their existence to paper over um, the, right. the, the, the huge hit that their, that their income right. was taking. That's right. It, it's very important. It was out of necessity. Uh, you, you, you really wouldn't have seen the record numbers uh, of, of this, this uh, you know, rise of trillion dollars in subprime loans in 2005 and 2006. Uh, it, were it not out of necessity, uh, were it not because people uh, just, just to subsist uh, needed uh, a, a, some form of bubble to uh, capture uh, a, a, a subsistence level of uh, maintaining their their standard living. Uh, so yeah, I think I think that's a, a, a key part of the sort of big picture here. And then the other big picture 
is this extreme concentration that we're seeing in all of these sectors uh, across our economy. And and financialization plays a key role in that. Uh, Mergers and acquisition has become sort of uh, one of the main profit centers for Wall Street, Uh, number one. Number two, uh, I've already mentioned sort of the private equity roll up. Uh, and and how that sort of uh, you know concentrates ownership in fewer and fewer hands, and uh, all of these things uh, sort of drive uh, this ability to you know number one capture rents, uh, the ability to uh, you know make your money not through providing a better product but uh, being you know one of the few people. Uh, few industries uh, or particular companies within that industry that people can turn to uh, to uh, acquire that product or service. Uh, and and you also see this play out regionally because if, if the power and, and wealth is concentrated and, and, and actual markets are concentrated in fewer hands, those, those are located in very specific areas. And this is why we see the decrease in sort of economic dynamism across the country. And uh, we see the hollowing out of large swaths of the country, whether in the Midwest or uh, in Appalachia or in in the South. So um, I I think these things all play together and they all have at their core, this idea of uh, this, this, this concept of big money, of, of shareholder tyranny, of, uh, financialization, uh, th- those sort of sit atop what we're seeing throughout the economy, I think. And, uh, you know, for workers, it becomes more and more difficult uh, to, you know, maintain without a- assuming a certain level of risk. And what we saw in the crisis is that risk uh, ultimately became, you know, completely toxic. And uh, what we saw in the aftermath is that uh, all of the losses that were uh, through this system of securitization were allocated on the uh, individual families and homeowners themselves with with very few consequences for uh, the banks uh, or uh, their their top officers. Uh, Really no consequences. I I think it's uh, fair to say. You cover big finance full time and do a really excellent job explaining what's going on on Wall Street to those of us who don't do what you do for a living. But it's pretty often the the machinations of, of big finance are, 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 are pretty mystifying, I think, to a lot of people, um, a lot of coverage of finance and Wall Street is relegated to the business section. It's not even called the economy section. It's the business section because it's for businessmen to read. Right. Do you think the inscrutability is an accident? No, it's not an accident at all. It, uh, I, I think these uh, corporations thrive on uh, creating this myth that they're the only ones who understand what's going on. In actuality, these things are sort of dolled up in uh, you know jargon, like any industry has jargon, but uh, it, it's it's a little easier, I think, to to discern once you recognize the patterns. So uh, you're absolutely right to say that these things get relegated to the business pages, and 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 sometimes I see my role 
is as elevating things on the business pages and providing the context and analysis necessary to understand them as political uh, uh, maneuvers and political arguments and, and, and things that everybody should be interested in and involved in. Uh, so, so that's kind of what I do, I think, uh, in, in some respects, is uh, provide the proper context to a, a lot of these various schemes and uh, understand how they're being used uh, at, at the expense of workers, at the expense of investors, ordinary retail investors, uh, and at the expense of our broader economy. I think this intentional inscrutability of of big finance and Wall Street also plays a role in giving people from Wall Street this aura of of uh, the smart guys in the room. The only people who can regulate the system are the people who've worked in it. Um, and so shifting to the current administration, and I think this is the longest I've gone in any interview since the election without mentioning his name, but Donald Trump ran, <laughs> ran a campaign, um, you know, that was characterized as, as as fairly hostile to Wall Street, but his administration is now loaded with high-ranking Wall Street personnel. Can you guide us through who those Wall Street figures in the Trump administration are and what they're trying to accomplish? Sure. So uh, probably the biggest at this point is Gary Cohn, and he is the head of the National Economic Council, uh, which is an entity inside the White House. And uh, one reason why he has, has sort of leaped to the top in terms of power and influence is that by being inside the White House, he can hire underlings and uh, subsequent personnel without having to go through the Senate confirmation process. So while Trump has sort of agonized and, and, and done a pretty poor job of staffing the federal government uh, through various agencies, uh, Gary Cohn hasn't <laughs> had that problem. He, he's been able to you know, pick up his uh, subordinates and install them uh, you know, right away. And so that has given him the base to make these arguments inside the administration and, and sort of in the combat with, uh, you know, a Steve Bannon, uh, Cohn has had a lot of ammunition uh, and he's been available to, uh, you know, he's been able to, to you know, put his message forward. And that message really is a, a pretty uh, common, I'd say, Republican message, uh, conservative message of, of tax cuts and, and massive deregulation. Uh, we're certainly seeing deregulation across the financial sphere. That plays into the people who have been uh, nominated and confirmed at the various agencies. Of course, you have Steve Mnuchin. He's the Treasury Secretary, and he was uh, uh, a partner at Goldman Sachs, then ran his own hedge fund. He became the CEO of a bank called One West uh, that was uh, right in the middle of the foreclosure abuses that we saw after uh, the uh, collapse of the housing bubble. Um, you know, you have Jay Clayton, who's uh, the head of the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission. He was a lawyer uh, for uh, a number of financial industry clients at uh, a white shoe law firm called Sullivan Cromwell. Uh, his biggest client was Goldman Sachs. Uh, and that name keeps popping up again and again, right? Um, so you also have this guy uh, at the office of the comptroller of the currency. And this one is, is really interesting. So the OCC 
is one of the largest banking regulators. Um, uh, I'd say the Federal Reserve's number one, and number two would be the OCC. They 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 regulate and OCC's OCC's name recognition is of the yeah. currency. Yeah, they're, it, they're, it's name recognition is probably like at two or three <laughs> percent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, nobody knows who they are, but they they regulate all the top national banks, and um, it's an independent agency. But the term of Obama's head of the OCC ended in May, and instead of having to go through the confirmation process, what the Trump administration did was find this guy, another corporate lawyer named Keith Noriega, off the street. And they immediately made him the a an un, a, a, a position you didn't have to confirm. Uh, they call him the first deputy of the OCC. And then when Thomas Curry, who was Obama's head, uh, had to resign because his term ended, uh, they just made Noriega the acting head of the OCC. And this is a guy who's done had no vetting. He had active clients as of you know just months ago. Uh, including all of the top banks, uh, practically on Wall Street. And uh, he was thrown into this position, uh, which, uh, and they used this terminology called a special government employee, which meant that he's not, he doesn't have to abide by these strictures uh, where, for uh, if you leave government service for a year, you can't lobby the government on particular issues that you dealt with or you can't uh, for five years uh, uh, in, engage in, in lobbies on behalf of the foreign government or all these other kind of uh, impediments to the revolving door. He elides all of those just by being a special government employee. Uh, and if he goes back into the private sector, this is kind of the insidious part of it, Noriega would then have a resume builder saying that I ran the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and I uh, understand and got an, an, a, a, an education in all of the bank examination that goes on through OCC, and I can bring that wisdom to you, my client, uh, in trying to evade government regulations, which was sort of his job uh, as a corporate lawyer for all these Wall Street banks prior to being the head of the OCC. So it's, it's almost like a short-term rental that they're doing so that this guy can not only boost his resume, but, but sort of be a political intelligence mechanism to bring back to Wall Street all of this wealth of information of what the examiners know and what they don't and what they look at and what they don't see. So uh, it, it's, it's quite remarkable. And uh, I feel like I've only scratched the surface, surface of some of the uh, uh, various players within this. But Noriega is one that hasn't really been high profile, but is, is really kind of wild. Hey, this is Dan Denver, your faithful host. I started this podcast a few months back as an experiment. I had no idea what would happen. Today, we have between 12,000 and 15,000 listeners each week. And, irony of ironies, it turns out that starting a socialist podcast entails starting a small business, albeit a really, really tiny one. And that means having to generate revenue. One big way that's happening is on Patreon.com, where 235 people and counting are already making contributions. If you like the show, please go to patreon.com search for The Dig, and contribute a few bucks. And help us reach our goal of 1,000 supporters at some point in the next year. 
You also may have noticed that we've had some ads recently by publishers at Oxford University Press and University of California Press, who both put out loads of great books. I'm working now to bring more publishers on board. If you work for a publisher, please get in touch. There is no better podcast to reach a hardcore group of leftists who like reading serious books. If you write books, please contact your publisher and encourage them to support the podcast. Our interviews showcase the best lefty writers, and our ads do the same. And now, back to the show. So, what's the Trump administration's regulatory, or I guess it's probably deregulatory, agenda when it comes to Wall Street, and what have they done so far? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I think the biggest thing that uh, the Trump administration has done is simply uh, call off the dogs when it comes to enforcement. Um, there were some things that were in the pipeline, you know, through law enforcement, Department of Justice, that they, they sort of wrapped up and, and, and did it in the least disruptive way possible. But uh, it really doesn't matter what laws are on the books if you don't have people installed at these various agencies who are willing to actually, uh, you know, monitor them and oversee them. Uh, one thing that we've seen is, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve giving this continued delay to this thing called the Volcker Rule. Uh, the Volcker Rule is one of the largest parts of the Dodd-Frank financial reform law, which is sort of under assault at all sides by Republicans. And uh, while it's a fairly flawed law, the, the, the Volcker Rule, uh, the entire purpose is to stop deposit-taking companies from essentially gambling with depositor money, from using uh, their own accounts to do what is called proprietary trading, risky trading, uh, uh, using the depositor funds as a, a cheap source of funding. So uh, under this rule, all of the trades and vehicles that uh, violated this standard of not doing proprietary trading were supposed to be sold off. They were, uh, uh, all the banks were supposed to unwind all of these large trades and, and, and their investments in things like hedge funds in order to comply with the Volcker Rule. Well, the Federal Reserve has uh, given three separate delays. The most recent delay, which was done this year, uh, allowed an additional five years to, underwind, to unwind these trades. So a, a law that was written in 2010 now doesn't have to be complied with uh, with respect to the Volcker Rule until 2022. And uh, so you just see the absurdity of uh, claiming that there's still a law on the books when they just endlessly delay and delay and delay the effective implementation date. Uh, so that's an example of how if you just sort of walk off the field, uh, what's written down in the federal statutes really doesn't matter. So, I mean, I think that's the one main thing. The second part of the, uh, the agenda is uh, sort of this preparation uh, to overturn a lot of the rules in Dodd-Frank, uh, an executive order that Trump signed. Uh, called for the uh, review by the Treasury Secretary of pretty much every federal regulation around the financial industry and recommendations for what to do about them. Now, that, that review is due actually uh, June 3rd. Uh, and we're speaking on, on May 31st. 
the, the Treasury Department, since they have almost no staff uh, that's been confirmed, has already said that they're not going to get that done by June 3rd. They're going to do it in stages. Um, but they're specifically looking at a series of different uh, laws, guidance, regulations. Uh, and, and what they can do is they can sort of subtly, within the limits of the statute, change the guidance and change the, the interpretive uh, uh, regulation uh, that's attached to these statutes to soften the blow. Uh, you know, so much of Dodd-Frank was left sort of open to interpretation from the various federal regulators. And so uh, it's just a matter of the Treasury Department or the FDIC or the Federal Reserve or any of these federal banking regulators to take a second look at uh, these, the way that these things were already interpreted uh, and and change them. Now, that's a pretty laborious process that takes two to three years usually to go through the regulatory gauntlet. you got to file notice. You have to ask for public comment. And all of those things take time. However, uh, you know, in the meantime, you're not enforcing uh, most of the laws on the books anyway. And the second thing is, is that by the time the Obama administration got out of office, still about one third of all Dodd-Frank regulations were not written. They were not completed at the time uh, that, that uh, you know, Donald Trump was inaugurated. And so the, the other very easy thing that you can do is just not move forward on all of these various statutorily uh, 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 mandated regulations that are supposed to be done. And once you don't do that, uh, you know, one third of Dodd-Frank is sort of wiped out. Uh, the final thing you can do is through Congress, and, and that's sort of a two-pronged approach. Number one, during uh, the, the first five months or so of the administration, uh, they used this thing called the Congressional Review Act, which is a very obscure law. It's only been used once before in history prior to Donald Trump. And it allows the House and Senate to roll back uh, through a resolution by a majority vote uh, any regulations that they disagree with uh, that were done within the previous 60 days of the prior administration. Now, that's 60 legislative days. So these so-called midnight rules that uh, they were able to overturn from Obama actually went back to June of 2016. And they did this 14 times. And a couple of those were uh, rules that affected the financial industry. Uh, one of them was around disclosure for oil and gas firms on the, on the payments that they made to foreign governments. This was in Dodd-Frank. Um, they no longer have to make that disclosure to the United States. So that uh, helps oil and gas companies uh, hide uh, what they're doing in foreign countries. Like bribes. Uh, the un- that, exactly. Another one was uh, uh, really just a, a complete uh, wet kiss to the financial industry. It said that if states wanted to set up these state-based retirement accounts for workers in the states that did not have access to, say, a 401k or a defined benefit pension, uh, there was, uh, you know, a lot, I think eight states put together these state-based uh, retirement account programs. And there was some regulation from the Department of Labor that enabled this to happen without conflicting with various federal laws. And uh, those were rolled back. 
so it looks like these state programs, you know, states are supposed to be the laboratories of democracy, but apparently not when uh, they might, uh, uh, you know, affect the financial industry's ability to capture, uh, you know, private retirement accounts. Um, so those got rolled back. Uh, and, and, and the final thing I would say is in terms of what the regulatory agenda is, is that once all of these recommendations get made, uh, for what to do about deregulation, if you want to put those, you know, sort of into the statutes, you're going to have to pass a law. And, uh, the house has moved forward through the financial services committee on a thing called the choice act. And what the choice act would do is, uh, you know, by its name, give financial institutions a choice. Uh, and the choice would be they could roll back uh, pretty much all regulations from Dodd-Frank. All they would have to do is put together what is known as a leverage requirement. Uh, leverage is a, a ratio, essentially, between borrowing and equity. Uh, you know, if you have a 10% leverage ratio, that means you can uh, lend out $100 and borrow 90 of those dollars. So you're leveraging that money. Uh, so uh, the idea is that if you have a higher leverage ratio, you don't need any of the other regulations because the banks would have to pay for their own mistakes. They would absorb the loss through their, 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 their capital. The problem with that is that 10% is, is, is woefully inadequate to that task. And the way that the Choice Act sets it up is uh, it says, well, you have to have a 10% leverage ratio, but if you don't, we'll give you a year and then we'll check again. So there's no enforcement. There's really no penalty for not having this leverage ratio. So it's equivalent to not even having to have it at all. And so the Choice Act is really a choice of nothing uh, in exchange for turning in uh, so many of these uh, various rules that were set up uh, after the financial crisis. Um, two follow-ups on that. The first, isn't it the late Justice Scalia's son who's been at the lead in fighting <laughs> rulemaking on Indeed. Dodd-Frank? Indeed. Uh, Eugene Scalia is uh, sort of seen as the super lawyer to the banking industry. Um, one case that I've been tracking uh, that I will have something coming out uh, in the next print edition of The New Republic uh, is he's working on this thing to with MetLife to try to get them off uh, from this designation as a systemically important financial institution. Uh, in Dodd-Frank, it sets up this panel of regulators that can designate uh, any non-bank, any bank with more than $50 billion in assets, and also any non-bank as a, a systemically important institution. And what that means is it has higher capital requirements, it has uh, more stringent regulation. It essentially says you guys are so important that your failure uh, would would cause uh, you know mass disruption to the economy and the financial system. And so we're going to put you under the microscope. Well, MetLife didn't like being under the microscope. And so they hired Eugene Scalia. And Eugene Scalia has argued in court that the process that uh, this panel known as the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC, went, uh, put forward uh, was inadequate. It was uh, uh, improper. Uh, and they got a federal judge to agree with them last year. However, there was an appeal, and it looked like the appeals court was going to rule. And then the Trump administration wrote this executive order 
telling uh, the Treasury Secretary to review the process for this Financial Stability Oversight Council, of which the Treasury Secretary is the chair, uh, and and review it under factors that were in the, the very factors that this federal judge said invalidated the MetLife case. And then Eugene Scalia took that executive order, brought it to the appeals court and said, you have to delay your ruling because the Treasury Department is looking at the, the process here. So this was like MetLife almost buying an executive order from the Trump administration with the help of Eugene Scalia. <laughs> now, what are the connections here? <laughs> MetLife gave $100,000 to the Trump inaugural committee. Uh, Eugene Scalia's law firm, Gibson Dunn, had two transition officials on the Trump transition team. So it's very clear to me that they sought help with this, what they thought was going to be an adverse ruling from an appeals court. And the Trump administration dutifully stepped in with an executive order that was almost tailored and customized to be used to help out MetLife in this litigation. It's uh, absolutely amazing, and it's just one of many ways in which Eugene Scalia has, has put himself forward on these various uh, 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 regulatory matters with respect to the financial industry. What a family. Um, my second follow-up is on the Fed delaying implementation of the Volcker rule, uh, Volcker, Volcker mm-hmm. rule <laughs> which you mentioned. Um, yeah. The Fed obviously is governed in this very complicated is governed in this very complicated way. Um, is this yeah. delay due to Trump making his malign influence felt in the Fed, or is this due to problems internal to the Fed? I would say that's due to problems internal to the Fed. Now. Uh, the Trump administration has nominated uh, a uh, what they call the vice chair of supervision. This would be the point person at the Fed for all uh, uh, financial regulations. And of course, the Fed may be the most important uh, bank supervisor out there. And uh, their their choice is is you know familiarly. Uh, uh, you know, deregulatory in his very nature. However, he's not there yet. He's only been nominated. He hasn't been confirmed. Uh, I I believe, uh, you know, this is the third delay of the Volcker rule that we've seen from the Federal Reserve. And the previous two were under the Obama administration and under hand-picked uh, Obama administration officials like uh, Janet Yellen and others. Uh, I, I the, the culture at the Fed right uh, over the last decades, it has been uh, to have a, a somewhat light touch on regulation. You're seeing a lot of, in fact, at the staff level, uh, a lot of the acolytes of Alan Greenspan are, are still really entrenched at the Fed. Scott Alvarez, who is the general counsel of the Federal Reserve, uh, he left this year, but prior to that, he was an extremely malign influence on what the <laughs> Fed was doing, particularly on financial regulation. And he was a, a holdover from the Greenspan years. So, uh, you know, there's a there's a cultural shift that needs to happen at the Fed. Uh, however, who Trump is going to bring in to uh, be that financial supervising point person, uh, it does not, uh, you know, uh, it does not look good for uh, that cultural change to happen uh, right away. Alan Greenspan's deep state at the Fed. Um, 
who in the Fed is is fighting the good fight amongst the the governors? Well, uh, that's also a problem because uh, the previous point person for financial regulation, a guy named Daniel Tarullo, uh, quit uh, because I, I assume because he saw that his his uh, his you know all his his authority was going to be taken away from him. So uh, he's done. Uh, he was, uh, you know, generally a, a pretty decent figure in terms of trying to move forward, but he was fighting his own agency uh, in terms of the bureaucratic uh, kind of infighting, uh, and and he would sort of choose his battles, and he he did increase uh, some of the uh, capital requirements on the uh, largest financial institutions. Uh, and and did a couple other things that were laudatory. However, um, you know, it was there was always sort of a battle within the Federal Reserve, and now he's gone. So uh, it's unclear to me who uh, is is available at the Fed to to really be that point person that's that's going to be a counterpoint uh, to the forces that Trump is going to unleash. There there was a lot of uh, people on the left were were pretty hopeful about about Sarah Bloom Raskin, correct? Well, she was a very good uh, uh, governor uh, on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, but then she left uh, to take uh, a job at the Treasury Department. She was, at the end of the Obama administration, number two or number three official at the Treasury Department. She was replaced, uh, essentially, by Lael Brainerd, who was a Timothy Geithner acolyte, uh, who was at Treasury uh, had had a uh, particular interest in you know, financial, uh, international financial uh, institutions, and uh, she moved into uh, Raskin's seat at the Fed. Uh, and and you know, there's sort of an unofficial official rule uh, on the Fed Board of Governors. It's kind of like the Super Friends. Like there's always there's a seat for every particular. Uh, discipline. There's supposed to be an academic seat, a community banker seat. And Raskin's was really sort of the public interest seat. And when Brainerd took that over, it, they sort of eliminated that seat. And uh, there were subsequent vacancies on the board. And Obama did seek to fill those vacancies, but that, that expired, basically. Uh, the, the Republicans in the, in the Senate did not move on those nominations. And so the subsequent nominations are all going to come from Trump. So uh, the the public interest seat on the Fed, which was the one that was more interested in consumer protection, that was interested in uh, the rights of small shareholders and, 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 and sort of all of the things you don't normally hear about at the Federal Reserve, um, that, that seat got eliminated. Uh, within the Obama administration, and I don't think it's coming back. Um, stepping back a little, um, obviously we, we've talked about how Republicans want to eviscerate Dodd-Frank, which Obama signed into law in 2010. Can you mm-hmm. walk us through what Dodd-Frank is and to what degree it addressed the underlying issues that led to the financial crisis? And to what degrees it fell short? Absolutely. So Dodd-Frank uh, was this law that was put in place in July of 2010. And uh, after the financial crisis, I think uh, 
the group of uh, financial regulatory reformers that you see today, many of which have very wide ranging, expansive ideas for what you could actually do uh, to make the financial system safer, whether it's uh, reinstituting, reinstituting the Glass-Steagall law that would uh, you know, create a firewall between investment and commercial banks, or uh, just sort of ring-fence those assets, uh, or uh, the, the, you know, there are a number of these kinds of proposals out there. Um, those people didn't really have it all together uh, at the time that Dodd-Frank was being debated. And uh, they lost a number of the key fights on Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank was really Tim Geithner's vision. It's very technocratic in nature. It tries to sort of tweak the system that we had rather than overhaul it. Uh, and it put a ton of discretion into the regulatory agencies who then had to figure out uh, what the specific language would be on a lot of the rules that were sort of vaguely hinted at within Dodd-Frank. So you have two problems here. Number one, it's a sort of technocrat's dream where you can sort of dial in the right amount of regulation and, and somehow prevent crises. Uh, and number two, it's all of this discretion that you put in the hands of regulators who can then change uh, those, those interpretations at their discretion. Uh, and those are, I think, the two weaknesses of Dodd-Frank. Now, it did have strength. It, uh, the one new agency, that the one new framework that it really created was the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which uh, which, uh, which you've finally, called which mm-hmm. which you've called a uh, um, an oasis an oasis amid a sea of deregulation. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So uh, it's you know this was the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren before she was a senator she came up with this idea and uh it it took all of the very disparate consumer protection responsibilities out there and centralized them in one agency that was actually dedicated to looking out for the consumer which wasn't really done before uh previous agencies that had consumer protection responsibility also was thinking about the safety and soundness of the banks. And so that would seemingly always take precedence over consumer protection. So uh, I think, I think CFPB has been successful. Uh, Maybe not uh, the most successful it could be, but moderately successful uh, returning billions of dollars to uh, individuals who've been harmed by financial institutions, creating uh, several standards, uh, uh, on, you know, things as disparate as prepaid cards, uh, mortgage servicing, uh, mandatory arbitration, and, and a host of other uh, uh, rules and regulations that they've uh, standardized and, and streamlined. Uh, so that's an example of sort of the one area where Dodd-Frank actually did do a reorganization and overhaul. Uh, uh, you know, and, and there are other things that are positive about Dodd-Frank. Uh, however, I would, I would just fall back on these, these two core, core weaknesses, the, uh, discretionary, uh, uh, aspect and also, uh, the, 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 the weakness around, um, you know, it being a sort of technocratic tweak rather than an overhaul of the system. And Republicans obviously, and Wall Street 
hate the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, they want to dismantle <laughs> it. Uh, they 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 want to dismantle it. They want to they want its budget put into the appropriations process so they can then starve that budget. Uh, right now, the budget is protected. It's part of the Federal Reserve. And so, uh, yes. And they want to change proposals. They want to change its governance as well. They want to change its governance structure from a single director to a five person bureau uh, or a panel, which we see in, in a number of other places. This is just trying to diffuse the uh, that out. Now, uh, they may hold back on that because uh, it's easier to replace one person than it is five. And uh, this time next year, July 2018, Richard Cordray, who's the director of CFPB, his term is up. Uh, and, you know, obviously, Donald Trump is not going to renominate Richard Cordray to another five years at uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So what is likely to happen is they'll put somebody in who is thoroughly disinterested in enforcing consumer protection laws. Uh, and, uh, you know, voila, you've, you've sort of gutted the agency from within. Now, obviously, it would be more sustainable and durable if you did something structural, like uh, what you said, whether it's overhauling the governance structure or changing the appropriations. Uh, but, you know, that's a pretty good fallback plan to just hire a CFPB director who is not interested in consumer protection. Stepping back to talk about the politics of some of the, this, it's mm-hmm. really remarkable how much power Wall Street retains a decade after the crash, after anger over Wall Street fueled both mm-hmm. Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party and Bernie Sanders and Trump, weirdly enough, as that turns out. <laughs> um, how did Wall Street manage to maintain so much sway during the most intense political headwinds you could imagine them facing? Well, they sort of kept their head down. Um, they uh, recognized that the legislative fight was only half the battle. So when Dodd-Frank passed, they obviously worked to water down Dodd-Frank as much as they could in Congress, but they realized that that was only the beginning, that they could go behind the scenes into these regulatory agencies, and uh, many of which are staffed with their former colleagues, and use their influence there really under the radar uh, to undermine these various protections, uh, regardless of their public profile. Now, their public profile really has not improved terribly much. Just look to the Wells Fargo uh, account scandal to see how, uh, you know, the sort of fervor at Wall Street has only grown uh, since the financial crisis. Interestingly, uh, in the aftermath of the Wells Fargo scandal, John Stump, who was their CEO, actually had to resign, which is something we really didn't see uh, in the aftermath of a much larger crisis created by Wall Street uh, in 2008. So uh, that that ability for the grassroots and for, uh, you know, individuals uh, in Congress to really uh, fight uh, and, and, and whip up a, a frenzy around uh, the financial industry, it still exists in kind of a latent form. 
Uh, and when you see things like Wells Fargo take place, it, it comes to the fore and it's stronger than it was before. Um, uh, you know, just looking at the makeup of the Democratic caucus, uh, you know, in in the aftermath of 2008, you didn't have an Elizabeth Warren uh, or even a Bernie Sanders sort of lurching the uh, caucus to the, the, the side of, of stronger and tougher regulations on the industry. Uh, whereas now uh, it would be very difficult for any member of the Democratic caucus, at least in the Senate, to, to really speak out on behalf of Wall Street. Um, even the minority leader, uh, Chuck Schumer, has, has uh, you know, has sort of temper uh, his rhetoric around that. So in some ways, things are improved uh, in, in terms of that. However, uh you know, one thing we know is that uh, the financial industry has a lot of money, has a lot of power, uh, has the ability to sort of get in the crevices, uh, work behind the scenes to ensure that uh, they, you know, aren't terribly affected or held accountable uh, for any of the things that they do. And uh, in the Trump administration now, and in Republicans in Congress, they have a, a very important ally uh, to move that forward. This episode of The Dig is supported by The Nation, 150 years of political analysis and progressive solutions online and in print. The Dig listeners can head to thenation.com backslash dig to get a six-month subscription to The Nation for only $12. That's thenation.com backslash dig. Check out this episode's program notes for that URL if you don't have a pen handy. Also, Be sure to listen to The Nation's podcast, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Weiner. New episodes every Thursday. Hey, this is Bosco Sankara, editor of Jacobin. Uh, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but The Dig and Dan Dunford are really, really good. And Dan needs your help to help pay the people who work on the show and uh, reproduce their labor power. And as every Marxist knows, it's very important. Uh, to support the show, go to patreon.com and look up The Dig. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Thanks, and I uh, hope you enjoy the show. Looking back, do you think that if Obama had cracked down harder on Wall Street, including with criminal prosecutions, do you think that might have prevented far-right anti-globalists and libertarians from picking up so much of the anti-Wall Street energy in the wake of 2008? Absolutely. Uh, I, I think that this was sort of the biggest mistake of uh, uh, Obama's presidency. Uh, I think it's created a, a sort of tear in our social fabric to have this situation where we had this massive crisis built on a mountain of fraud uh, that was demonstrable and nobody is held accountable for it. It uh, speaks to this sort of rot in the heart of our democracy, which is actually the first line of uh, the book that I wrote last year before uh, the Trump uh, election, uh, that uh, this sort of nagging uh, unrest, this this discontent with this two-tiered system of justice that we appear to have in this country um, I did. I do think led, lead, you know, helped lead to, to Trump's rise, and and his co-opting of that argument 
that uh, they were the ones on the side of the ordinary worker uh, against the sort of elite superstructure uh, that of which the financial industry was a part. Um, I, I think that uh, there was a lot that could have been done. Uh, there were a lot of mistakes uh, made. I, I think that the, the very design of many of these programs that were attempted to help homeowners, for example, uh, because of the nature of them, they weren't universal. They weren't. Uh, they 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 diffused the responsibility uh, down to uh, private companies to decide whether or not uh, homeowners got relief. And uh, so the face of the biggest government program, uh, or one of the big ones under Obama, was uh, a mortgage servicing company that actually had incentives to screw the the average homeowner. Uh, That was a a severe blow to liberalism. Um, So, you know, there there are a lot of ways in which uh, this failure, this core failure uh, of accountability really did lead to the rise of, of what we're seeing today. Um, getting closer to the end of the interview, I want to move just to some like grab bag things that I want to get your take on that have to do with finance. Okay. <laughs> um, one okay. is something that's been in the news a lot uh, since Trump took office is the so-called Trump bump, which refers to the stock market blowing up amidst all this investor excitement over Trump being president. And now that bump is deflating. Was what do you make of this? Is this this example of the market's faith in animal animal spirits, or were they placing more rational bets that turned out to be wrong, but rational bets on a unified Republican government that they believed would deliver um, a lot more than they've been able to deliver in Congress? Um, is is the oh I think it's the latter. I mean I, I I think it's they assumed that with unified Republican control uh, that that would be good for business in two core ways: lower taxes and more deregulation. Now there has been more deregulation. Uh, the lower taxes is is being held up. Uh, it's it's sort of sequenced in line behind uh, whatever they're going to do on health care, and uh, as you know, the, the sort of air of scandal has engulfed the Trump administration. Uh, I think investors are more and more uh, uh, wary of whether there will be any kind of tax uh, uh, legislation that will pass at all. So I think that's part of it. Uh, I think the second part of it is that um, what we, we have seen corporate profits rise uh, over the last, you know, since the Trump uh, election. Uh, uh, part of it on anticipation of these changes and part of it on real tangible gains in terms of lower compliance costs, because the likelihood of being uh, targeted uh, in a regulatory environment is lower. And so uh, we've already seen those profits rise and we've seen investors, you know, sort of build that up, but that, that cannot be a sort of perpetual motion machine. I, I just don't think, that uh, uh, even the investors themselves, uh, certainly, and the these large companies believe that they can sustain that level forever. And we're seeing some softening in terms of consumer spending and, and, and things like that. So there are some fundamental reasons 
why uh, uh, the Trump bump has sort of petered out. But I think the main reason is, as you described, uh, this loss of faith that there will be this transformation that will be very business friendly uh, through uh, legislative action. But yeah, while the Trump bump lasted, it was incredible propaganda for the Trump administration. It was in the New York Times every day or sure. so. I'm sure on CSN. CS- and it fed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it fed this this myth that uh, Republicans are, are good for business uh, as if the only way to sort of designate good for business is whether or not uh, you completely eliminate regulations and lower taxes, that those are the only criterion uh, criteria that you need uh, in order to judge uh, whether the business environment is friendly or not. Um, as well as well you know, as this mistaken I, I, idea that the way we evaluate the health of the American economy as the whole is by looking at Wall Street and how it's doing. Exactly. Looking at the stock market. So so that is another uh, major factor in, in all of this. Uh, and, and certainly Trump has said that because it's one of the few indicators that he can point to uh, that that reflect positively upon him. Uh, so he has certainly conflated uh, the stock market with the economy uh, at every at every step. My other grab bag uh, issue is what's going on in uh, Puerto Rico right now. It's hard to think of a single sadder case of ordinary people's economic interests and big finance um, being opposed as 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 Puerto Rico, which is only sometimes covered as part of the United States, which which it is in the U.S. media. Um, what yeah. they're under, currently undergoing a bankruptcy like process that's not technically bankruptcy. And massive, devastating yeah. austerity. What's happening in Puerto Rico? Yeah, I mean, much, much to the uh, consternation of those of us that write about these things, you're not allowed to call it bankruptcy. You have to call it a bankruptcy-like process. Uh, basically, there was a law last year passed called PROMESA. Um, that's an acronym. Uh, it also means promise in, in Spanish. And uh, it enabled the ability to put together this this bankruptcy type proceeding for Puerto Rico, which uh, suffers from uh, roughly 70, 70 to 73 billion dollars in debt uh, that was accumulated over the last uh, decade or more uh, through uh, both uh, their own mismanagement within their government, but, but more importantly, uh, because their their municipal debt was uh, what is known as triple tax exempt, uh, it was it was exempt from state, local, and and federal taxes. So uh, Wall Street financial interests just loved to issue Puerto Rican debt, and they pushed the island's uh, uh, government to do so at every step, uh, and that led them into this 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 chasm that they're in right now with uh, their 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 situation there are also a lot of uh laws uh at the congressional level that that sort of uh disadvantage puerto rico um so as a result of all of these things there was this massive debt uh hedge funds uh known in the on the island as vulture funds picked up uh a lot of this debt at pennies on the dollar and 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 sought a major payday and because of the structure of the, the, the various laws uh, on the island, uh, they 
didn't have the ability to go through a bankruptcy, number one, and number two, they had uh, some constitutional guarantees with a lot of this debt. So it seemed like a, a easy money for these hedge funds. So PROMESA passes, and PROMESA does two things. It, it allowed for this bankruptcy process. However, it put in place this fiscal oversight board, which literally on the island is known as the Hunter. Uh, uh, much like, uh, you know, sort of almost a military dictatorship uh, was called like in places like Argentina in the 70s. But um, so the junta uh, is made up of seven unelected uh, members who have very uh, authoritative control over the operations of the budget in Puerto Rico. And they push through uh, I mean, there were austerity programs already in place prior to uh, uh, the junta getting involved, but uh, they mandated uh, the Puerto Rican governor, who is mostly a servant on fiscal matters to uh, these these unelected board members. Uh, they, they forced that governor to put together a plan that was really even more devastating. We were already at the sort of bare bones with Puerto Rico, uh, but these uh, it, it, it pushed it as a necessary condition of invoking this bankruptcy-like process. Uh, they, they added another, I think, $40 billion in budget cutbacks, hits to the health system, the closure of uh, another couple hundred schools, uh, uh, taking a lot out of higher education, like the University of Puerto Rico, which has been under strike for the last month by the students because of these cutbacks. Um, they, they dropped public pension spending through converting to 401k plans from defined benefit pensions. Uh, they, uh, forced certain government operations to be privatized. They, uh, I believe by next month, by July 1st, maybe, uh, there will be furloughs initiated for government workers. Uh, they're talking about cutting the school year by two months. Uh, this, this is an absolute disaster for the 3.5 million American citizens of Puerto Rico, many of whom have been leaving the island in droves. Uh, the, an average of a doctor a day has been leaving the island of Puerto Rico, uh, and it's been a significant brain drain and talent drain. It's really only the people that have the means to leave that are leaving, leaving behind this tremendous poverty and unemployment rate in the double digits. Uh, and uh, really talented personnel unavailable for core services like healthcare. Uh, so it, 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 this is a disaster for the people of Puerto Rico. And whatever the outcome of this bankruptcy-like process, uh, the austerity uh, has has already, you know, taken its toll uh, on the island. And there doesn't seem to be anything in here that is around economic development or restoring the prospects of the people who remain uh, on the island. It's uh, it's like a Greece inside the United States. That's right. Um, we've spent an hour or so discussing the brutally exploitative politics of upward economic redistribution um, perpetrated by Wall Street. So I want to finish by walking listeners back from the ledge and – <laughs> discussing some possible alternatives. One that you've written about are uh, public banks. Public banking is uh, a 
innovative idea. Uh, it's not a new idea in uh, the United States. There's one uh, existing public bank in North Dakota. It has been there for almost 100 years now. It started uh, from some prairie populace in, in 1919, uh, I believe. And uh, the way a public bank works is it uh, takes in the deposits, in this case of the state of North Dakota. It uses those deposits as the means to issue loans, uh, in, in the case of North Dakota, for infrastructure proce- projects of the state, also for student loans. Uh, you, can, you can come up with a number of uh, variety of different ways in which to use public banks, uh, affordable housing, economic development, what have you. And uh, it offers them at a much lower rate because uh, it, it, you know, unlike uh, bondholders looking for a return on, on these kinds of uh, municipal products, projects, uh, it does not have the need to, you know, pay off large executive salaries uh, or things like that. So it offers uh, these uh, loans at a lower rate. And not only that, but uh, as it uh, commissions these loans and, and draws its, its return, most of that return goes right back to the state of North Dakota uh, as a surplus profit uh, that then is used uh, to cycle back into the economy of North Dakota. So uh, this has been a very successful program. Uh, in the wake of 2008, uh, a small group known as uh, the Public Banking Institute tried uh, in uh, various locations to uh, institute city and state-owned banks uh, for this purpose of both lowering in, uh, infrastructure costs and, and recycling the money in these deposits, these large deposits that uh, cities and states hold. You know, they're 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 holding these deposits for you know, tax revenue before it goes back out to services. And there's, there's, there's kind of a way station for, for this various, these various revenue streams. Uh, and it's, it's hundreds of billions of dollars and it can be used for economic development locally rather than go out to, you know, normally it's held by a wall street bank who then uses it for whatever purpose they want. Um, there are some initiatives that are moving forward in Santa Fe, New Mexico and Philadelphia in Oakland in Santa Rosa, California. Uh, one of the bigger ones is in the state of New Jersey, where the leading uh, candidate uh, on the Democratic side is running on a platform of public banking. Ironically, he's a former Goldman Sachs banker named Phil Murphy, uh, but he sees this uh, opportunity to use uh, the public banking system as a way to uh, you know, keep sort of local resources available for local needs. And uh, so it's it's a very interesting program. I wrote a, uh, a feature about it for In These Times magazine. You can check that out at InTheseTimes.com. Uh, and uh, you know, we will see. I think I think it's going to take one or two of these to actually come into force before uh, we get a sense of whether this can become you know something more widespread. But Certainly, if you put a public bank in the shadow of Wall Street in New Jersey, uh, that's going to capture some attention. Wow. Well, I feel better already. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Um, David Day. I aim to please. (laughs) David Day, and thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you.
David Dayan is a journalist who covers finance for a number of outlets, including The Intercept and The New Republic. He is also the author of the book Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jackman Magazine. As Marx once is reported having said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And also, if it's on iTunes, leave us a glowing review. As silly as it sounds, those reviews really do help introduce us to new listeners, who then listen to us and so on and so forth. So does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And also, find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is really helpful.